This evening we begin the second term of communion, which states that the whole doctrine of the Westminster Confession of Faith and the catechisms, larger and shorter, are agreeable unto and founded upon the Scriptures. The lecture for this evening on this term of communion will be mostly dealing with preliminary um, matters and we will next time get into discussing the particulars of the doctrine when it says the whole doctrine. We'll begin looking at the particulars of the doctrine of the confession of faith, the larger and shorter catechism. But there are some preliminary remarks that I believe will cover most of our time this evening that I want to focus our attention upon. Why do we need confessions and creeds? Why is it important that we have the confession of faith, the larger catechism, and the shorter catechism as confessions or as confessional standards. Isn't the scripture sufficient? These are the kinds of questions that we're going to be looking at this evening. And in answering that question, why do we need confessions and creeds, there are essentially three reasons that I want to explore this evening. The first reason, and I'll just uh, very quickly give you the three reasons and then you'll have those and we'll go through them together. The three reasons why we need confessions and creeds, first being to teach the true Christian religion. To teach the true Christian religion. The second reason is to defend the truth against heresy, against false teaching. And thirdly, to promote the peace, purity, and unity of the church. Those three reasons we will be giving as the answer, why do we need confessions and creeds? And so let's look at that very first one. In order to teach the true Christian religion, doesn't a confession of faith written by uninspired humans usurp that place of authority in a church that only the scripture should occupy? Someone may ask that question. When you have confessions uh, that you subscribe to, does that not replace the authoritative word of God? Well, we would respond, a confession of faith or catechism does not replace the scripture in authority nor does it add to or supplement the authority of Scripture as if the Bible were in any sense lacking in authority or lacking in sufficient authority. We've already noted from our series on the first term of communion that the Scripture is authoritative because God speaks in the Word of God. Now, unlike the Romish church, Presbyterianism maintains that no council of the church 
nor any creed of the wisest of church divines has authority equal to the Spirit of God speaking in the Scriptures. The authority in the Scripture is absolutely unique. The Scriptures alone are infallible and supremely authoritative in all matters of faith and life. And in fact, the Westminster Standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith itself maintains its own subordinate place to the inspired Word of God. We find, for example, in chapter 1, section 2 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, this uh, quote, All, and the all there refers to the books of the Old and New Testaments, all the books of the Old and New Testaments which are given by inspiration of God to be the rule, not one among many competing rules, but the rule of faith and life. And then we also find in chapter 1, section 10, we also find these words. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. And so this is the testimony of the confession of faith as to its own subordinate place to the infallible word of God. And so, before we move on to the next question, just realize again that even the confession of faith does not maintain an equal authority. It takes a subordinate authority to the inspired word of God. And so we ask, we're still under the first point that the confession of faith teaches the true Christian religion, but we have another question concerning that. What authority then does the confession of faith or any of the other terms of communion that are listed in our six terms of communion, what authority do any of these possess since they have been written by mere uninspired human beings? How can they have any authority at all? The question might be asked. One may say, I completely understand why the Word of God has authority. But in what sense can any other standard other than the Word of God have any authority within the church? Well, we maintain, uh, along with our Presbyterian forefathers, that the Confession of Faith, uh, the larger and shorter Catechism, and the other terms of communion, they have a subordinate authority in the church to that of the supreme authority of Scripture, a subordinate authority. Not no authority, but a subordinate authority. However, we hasten to say that they do possess authority in the church, a derivative authority. 
a derivative authority because they accurately summarize the truth of Scripture. They derive their authority not from the men who wrote them. They derive their authority not from the documents themselves. They derive their authority from the Scriptures which they accurately represent. <clears throat> if the words of men accurately convey the meaning of God's word, then those words, whether spoken or written, have authority. They have God's authority. Very key point. If the words of men, uninspired men, accurately convey what God's word says, they do have authority. They have God's authority. If they are accurately presented. For example, if I became angry because my day had not gone the way that I had planned it, and my little six-year-old daughter were to come up to me and remind me that God says it is a sin to get angry over such things. <clears throat> now, even though she may not specifically quote word for word a portion of God's word to that effect, if she reminds me to the of that particular truth. God tells us we should not be angry uh, unless there's a righteous cause over which we are angry. And she reminds me of that. I must repent and I must say you're absolutely right because not because of who she is. I can't demean uh, her, her young age and say, well, I'm not going to listen to you. I mean, you're my daughter. I'm not going to listen to you. You're only six years of age. But if she accurately represent, represents the Word of God, then I must see that she has behind what she says the very authority of God. She's speaking to me God's own Word. It's the meaning of God's Word. It's the sense of God's Word. But it's accurately communicated and conveyed. You see, I must submit myself to the words that she has spoken or that anyone else speaks if they are in keeping with the Word of God. That's the key point. <clears throat> in fact, it might be argued that if it is wrong to state what the Bible teaches in the form of a creed, then it is also wrong to state what the Bible teaches in the form of a sermon. We've pointed this out before. Thus, no one should ever listen to preaching, but only to the reading of God's Word. In other words, if it's wrong to, to articulate in the words of men a creed stating this is what the Bible teaches, then it's equally wrong to communicate that orally or verbally. And what we should simply do when you come to church, instead of me preaching, 
what you should expect me to do is simply to read the word of God to you. And uh, then we could uh, sing the word of God, but we cannot expound and teach from the word of God. We might also say that it's wrong, if it's wrong to write uh, a creed and for a church to subscribe to that creed, that it would also be wrong uh, as well to teach from the scripture in the form of a Bible study, not only preaching, but a Bible study. Thus, we might say that no one could ever ask, what does the Bible mean by that? No one could ever ask that question because immediately when that question is asked, then and someone is going to articulate in human words what that passage means. If we cannot explain what God's word teaches in the form of a creed, then we cannot do so in an informal situation. <clears throat> in fact, if somebody asked something like, well, what does Jesus mean when he says, I am the door? Then what we should respond by saying is, well, he means I am the door. Repeat back what the Bible says. See, that's what we're reduced to if we cannot explain in human words what the Scripture is saying. Or it would also be wrong to, to write in a book uh, anything uh, pertaining to the Scripture, to theology. So it would basically eliminate all theological or biblical works. We couldn't articulate what the Bible means on any subject. Furthermore, it would mean that, that as far as you parents, you would not be able to instruct your children. Your children come and ask you a question about the scripture. You would only have to, uh, you would only be able to repeat back to them the very words of the scripture. They say, what does the Bible mean here? Well, the Bible means, and then quote the passage back to them. You'd be in that same kind of situation, no instruction. So we're reduced to that kind of a situation if it is in fact wrong to have a creed which accurately represents what the Scripture teaches. Thus, we steadfastly maintain as Presbyterians that creeds that accurately present the truths of Scripture are authoritative. They are authoritative. However, they are subordinate in their authority to the Word of God and derivative from the Word of God. Derivative as to their authority from the Word of God. And therefore, they are most helpful tools in clearly teaching biblical Christianity. And if one can affirm, we'll take it one step further, if one can affirm that the confessional standards, that being the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger and shorter catechism, are subordinately and derivatively authoritative, then one can also affirm that the other documents in our terms of communion are as well subordinately authoritative and derivatively authoritative, as long as they are agreeable to the Word of God and founded upon the Word of God. 
From the Old Testament, we find that we are to explain, not simply read the Word of God to our children, but we are to teach them. We are to teach them. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we find these words. Now, these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that ye might do them in the land whither ye go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy son, and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee, in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. Certainly implied in this passage is not simply the fact that you just continuously repeat the commandments to your children, but that you instruct them, teach them, and apply those commandments to the various areas of their life in various circumstances and situations. One other Old Testament passage, which I think very clearly points out the importance of giving the sense and the meaning of God's Word, is found in Nehemiah chapter 8. Here we find Ezra taking the, the book of the law and opening the book, it says in verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. And then it goes on to say that after having read from that portion of God's law, the Levites, it says, and at the very end of verse 7, the Levites caused the people to understand the law and the people stood in their place. And then verse 8 says, So they read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. So they gave the sense, they gave the meaning of the passage and caused them to understand what God was saying to them. 
And so this forms the background for preaching, for teaching, for instruction, and for creeds as well. It is giving the sense of God's Word to God's people. And then in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 5, it says, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. And so if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, you see, our teaching must be wholesome. It must be it's wholesome because it's consistent and agreeable to the Word of God. And this, again, is a, um, an inference for having creeds as well. That creeds, that if they are wholesome words and agree to the Scripture, they can be used as a means of teaching the Christian faith and religion. 2 Timothy Chapter 1, verse 13. 2 Timothy 1.13 Paul's admonition to Timothy is this, Hold fast the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Hold fast the form of sound words. And so again, uh, the soundness of the words that they're to hold fast, they're sound because they are agreeable to God's Word. That's the standard. And finally, 2 Timothy 2.2 says, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. And so there is this process of taking this, the, the sound words and communicating them to others who will be able to communicate them to others. And so for the purpose of teaching, not simply for the purpose of reading and reciting and memorizing the scripture, but for the purpose of instruction and teaching. And so... For these reasons, then, we do affirm the fact that the confession, the larger and shorter catechism, as well as all of those terms of communion, we believe to be given so as to teach the true Christian religion. The second reason why we believe we need confession of faith 
as well as these other standards. The second reason is to defend the truth against heresy, against false teaching. During the time of biblical history, God did raise up inspired prophets and apostles to defend the church against the attacks of false teachers. Not every believer had their own copy of the scripture to study so as to appeal to it in the face of error. Thus, the need of inspired ambassadors of God at that particular point in time in history. However, since the cessation of inspired prophets and apostles, when the faithful church has been attacked by false teachers that would subvert the true Christian faith and religion, she has gathered herself into councils in order to clearly declare what the faith once for all delivered unto the saints says concerning truth and heresy. For example, one of those very early councils, the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., was convened so as to defend the truth of Christ's divinity, his deity, against the heresy of Arianism, which said, in fact, that Christ was a creation, the first creation of God. And so this this council was convened to defend the truth against heresy. And so we find the Westminster Confession of Faith, likewise, defends the true Christian religion against the errors of, of papacy. Erastianism, which is simply the lordship of the state over the church, against the error of, of Arminianism, the error of independency, and many other errors that were prominent in, uh, at that particular time in history. The Westminster Confession of Faith defends the truth against heresy as well. So, even though the Lord Jesus, the inspired prophets and the inspired apostles are no longer bodily present to settle controversy amongst God's people today. They are, however, present. The apostles, the prophets, the Lord Jesus Christ, they are present by the Word of God, by their inspired teaching, which they have left to us, which has been preserved for us by God in the Scriptures. And so faithful counsels throughout history do not appeal to their own infallibility to settle controversy, but they appeal to the infallible teaching of Christ, the apostles, and the prophets to settle controversy and to defend the truth against heresy. Now, it's true that confessions and creeds have tended to become 
more uh, expanded in their content as church history progresses. To begin with the Apostles' Creed is a, a very short statement of faith. Uh, to expand upon that with the, uh, the creed from Nicaea and then from Chalcedon and then the various creeds uh, thereafter uh, does expand the, the uh, uh, doctrinal statement uh, of, of the church with regard to truth and defending truth against heresy. That's naturally going to be the case. The more errors, the more heresies, the more the church is going to have to stand up for the truth. The more it's going to need to defend the truth against heresy. And so, uh, from the earliest times, you know, when the truth of Jesus Christ was attacked by the Gnostics, and then subsequently by the Arians, and then by the uh, Sabellians, who did not believe in the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ, who said that God was uh, one person rather than three persons, uh, one God and three persons. Sabellians said that God is essentially one person. Uh, the uh, church, as heresy sprang up in the 5th century, dealing with Pelagianism, uh, that said that man is not, um, is not born uh, does not inherit uh, Adam's sin. Does not. Uh, it's not passed on to him this uh, sinful nature. Uh, these types of things that man can save himself. Uh, Pelagianism. The uh, subsequent errors of the Romanists, the Church of Rome. Subsequent errors of dispensationalists and Pentecostals and liberals. The Church as its faithful, needs to defend the truth against these various false teachings so as to use the sword of the Spirit, to wield the sword of the Spirit as God has given it to her to expose error and promote truth. You see, the people of God in the Old Testament were commanded not only to promote the truth, that's the first point we talked about as far as a need for a confession or creed, they were not only to promote the truth, but were to expose false teaching. You remember in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, there the people of God, when a false prophet comes on the scene, how are they to judge his, this this prophet to determine whether he's true or false by the truth of God's word. If he compels you or tells you to go after false gods, which God has not commanded in his word, which God has forbidden, you know that this is not a true prophet. And in that particular case, a false prophet who is tried and tested is put to death for leading God's people astray. The ancient boundaries of the fathers, we find in Proverbs 22:28, were not to be moved. They ain't not only talking about property lines, but talking about theological lines of truth. Those lines of truth were not to be moved back from where God had established them. 
And so the church of Jesus Christ, dear ones, must not only proclaim the truth, but as did the prophets of old, the apostles and the Lord Jesus himself, we must, according to 1 John 4.1, we must believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone into the world. And a creed, a confession, identifies those errors. That's one of its purposes. Even as the church of Ephesus was commended by the Lord Jesus in Revelation 2.2, because Jesus says, Thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, lost my place, and Jesus goes on to say, and are not, and has found them liars. Jesus commends the church of Ephesus for trying those, testing those who say they're apostles and are not. But on the other hand, he condemns the church of Thyatira in Revelation 2.20 because Jesus says, Thou sufferest, thou allowest. That woman, Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants. So this is the second necessity to a creed or for a creed. To defend the truth against false teaching. Let me ask you, just as we come to the conclusion of this particular point, how many errors of false religion could possibly squeeze beneath this creed? No creed but the Bible. How many false teachings and false religions could say, yes, I will subscribe to that particular creed. No creed but the Bible. Well, certainly the Roman Catholics uh, could say uh, that they subscribe to you know, no creed but the Bible. They would say uh, that all of their things, even though they would say they have other sources of authority, they would say... We believe all of this is consistent with the Word of God. Any religious uh, group using the Bible could be a part of such a church. The Arminians, uh, the Pentecostals, Dispensationalists, even the cults, Jehovah Witnesses, could fall under that particular banner. So if we are to stand for the truth, we must stand against error. If we're to stand for the truth, we must stand against error. You can't stand for the truth without standing against error. The third reason for creeds and for confessions of faith is in order to promote the peace, purity, and unity of the church. Is true biblical unity promoted by bringing as many professing Christians together under the same roof, all in the name of Christian love, who yet have no agreement as to the teaching of Scripture? 
Is that true biblical unity? Just to see how many possible professing Christians you can get under the same roof meeting on one particular Sunday. Is that biblical unity? Amos 3.3 asks the question, can two walk together except they be agreed? And the natural answer to that rhetorical question is no, they cannot. They can only walk together in ecclesiastical communion when they are of the same mind about the truth. You can only walk together in true ecclesiastical unity when you are agreed on what the truth is. 1 Corinthians 1.10 1 Corinthians 1.10 says, the Apostle Paul speaking to a church that had many, many problems uh, which he addresses in this letter, but he makes it very clear you can't be believing various things about the truth. He says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment, that you think the same things, in other words that you exercise the same judgments based upon the same truth. In order to do that, you must have the same standard for truth. You must believe the same things. In Ephesians 4.4, 4, we find that Paul says there's not many faiths. There is one faith. There's one Lord, one baptism, one faith. There's not many systems of truth. There's one system of truth. God is not contradictory. He's not double-minded. He has revealed one system of truth. And if we do not agree with that system of truth that God has revealed then we believe and adhere to false teaching. False teaching is essentially heresy. That's, that's what we're talking about when we say heresy. Any false teaching can be called heresy. Now, there are degrees of heresy, degrees of false teaching. Some heresies are what are called damnable heresies. They can send a person to hell. Not to believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. Not to believe that we are saved by, by, faith through, uh, by grace through faith. And the finished work of Jesus Christ can send someone to hell. Now, there are, we might say again, there are degrees of heresy or false teaching. They're all contradictory to this one system of truth. Not all false teaching will send, necessarily send someone, however, to hell. That doesn't mean that it's approved by God. It's, not, it's a sin against the Lord God. And it is something for which uh, we must repent. 
if we have held to false teaching, or if we do hold to false teaching. But in Ephesians 4, uh, Paul's uh, desire is to demonstrate, he says in verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he lays out the oneness that we have together. And one of those items that he lists is one faith. And then one last passage illustrating this point is in Philippians 3.16. Philippians 3.16, the Apostle Paul again speaking, says, Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing to that standard of truth to which we have already attained, we are to walk by that same rule. We're not to change it. We're not to alter it. We're not to defect from that light of attainment to the truth. We're to have the same mind or let us mind the same thing, Paul says. We are, in fact, dear ones, instructed not to unite with believers and by implication with churches where doctrinal pluralism is permitted. Where you can believe whatever you want to believe within that particular church and it doesn't matter. We find many passages that would tell us very clearly that we ought not to associate with such a church or with believers in that kind of a context uh, uh, who would gather for worship holding that particular view. For example, in Proverbs 19, verse 27, Solomon, the wisest man on earth, says this, Cease my son to hear the instruction that causeth to err from the words of knowledge. Don't attend upon ministers, preachers, teachers in churches that cause you to err from the words of truth. In Romans chapter 16, verse 17, Romans 16, 17, Paul, closing this letter to the church, the Christians at the church of Rome, says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. Those who are divided from you because they do not adhere to the doctrine which you have received from me and from the apostles, you're not to have fellowship with them to worship with them in that ecclesiastical sense, you're not to have that kind of, of fellowship or communion, ecclesiastical 
communion with them, you are rather to avoid them. Second Thessalonians three six. Says this, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. Now, here it doesn't say that he's not a brother, it even assumes that he is a brother, but you're not to have ecclesiastical communion with one who does not walk according to the apostolic tradition. That is the teaching of the apostles. You are to separate yourselves from that kind of pluralism. You don't have communion. You don't have real unity in that kind of a situation. True unity is not simply the is not the attitude that we hear so often that we will simply agree to disagree. That unity is more important than truth. That that love for the brethren is more important than truth. Dear ones, we can't know how to exercise love for the brethren apart from the truth. Truth is absolutely foundational. Now, we don't throw out love for the brethren. That's true. But nevertheless, we must begin there. The church is the pillar and support of the truth, Paul says. And then, I simply, I won't read it, but uh, you can look it up. I read it earlier. The passage in First. Uh, Timothy chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, says again something very similar to what we have just read. So we're instructed not to unite with a church where doctrinal pluralism is permitted. And Jesus, furthermore, says concerning a kingdom, a city, or house, and I would say by implication we can certainly add a church, that a kingdom, city, or house, or church divided against itself cannot stand. In Matthew twelve twenty five, it cannot stand. It's doomed to collapse because of its doctrinal pluralism. It will collapse. It cannot continue unless there is true unity in the faith. True unity in the truth. As Alexander Henderson, a staunch defender of covenanted Presbyterianism in Scotland, who was a commissioner to the Westminster Assembly, so aptly put it, concerning this issue of doctrinal pluralism and the need to agree in doctrine, if you are to have that kind of ecclesiastical communion, he says, nothing so powerful to divide the hearts of people as division in religion. Nothing so strong to unite them as unity in religion. 
And the greater the zeal in different religions, the greater the division. But the more zeal in one, the more firm the union. That's cited in uh, uh, William Hetherington's book, History of the Westminster Assembly of Divines, page 373. Dear ones, where doctrinal pluralism is tolerated, error and heresy is tolerated within that body. To say that it doesn't matter what you believe concerning this particular issue is to say, in effect, it doesn't matter what you believe about the truth. And yet, we, at the same time, we affirm that the Bible and its teaching is the inspired Word of God. Now, that's contradiction. To say that God has given to us truth, but it doesn't matter what you believe about the truth. You see, this sinful toleration can only have the effect of, number one, undermining the truth itself. You see, all of the... I think of when I, when I think of undermining the truth, mixing error with truth in a congregation, allowing this kind of pluralism to, to run rampant, I think back to what God said in the Old Testament about uh, not mixing two different seeds in the same field or not mixing two different fabrics in the same garment or not mixing together uh, an ox and, a, and an ass in plowing, or not mixing two different standards of truth within the same church. And so, toleration of error will have the effect of undermining the truth, number one, but also will have the effect of denying the Spirit of God. You say, how does that deny the Spirit of God? Well, John 16, 13, Jesus said, How be it when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth. Now, do we believe that He did indeed guide the apostles into all truth? And yet, can we affirm it doesn't make any difference what you believe about this particular matter? That's the sin against the Holy Spirit. It's not saying that that's the unpardonable sin, but that is yet to sin against the Holy Spirit because He is called the Spirit of truth. Thirdly, this sinful toleration of, of uh, error and truth in the same church leads to God's judgment. It leads to God's judgment. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 20 and 22, Jesus says, Because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess to teach my servants, Behold, I will cast her into a bed and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation except they repent of their deeds. And so to sinfully tolerate is to invite the very judgment of God upon a church. And fourthly, and finally, as to 
the effects that tolerating sin or tolerating error within a church will have upon that church. It's to bring down itself, to bring down the church of Jesus Christ itself. Because as we've already noted, Jesus says that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. A church divided against itself cannot stand. Thus, I submit to you as we draw near to the end tonight, I submit to you that it is not enough to affirm the Bible is my creed. Under that creed, as we've already noted, you could have every branch of Protestantism, Romanism, the various Orthodox churches, and even the cults. This second term of communion concerning the, confession, the, the whole doctrine that's contained in the Confession of Faith, larger and shorter catechisms, this particular term of communion binds those who would unite with this congregation and with their Presbyterian forefathers of old. It binds them to the whole doctrine, not part of the doctrine, but to the whole doctrine of these standards as being biblical truth. Though these confessional standards are not inspired by the Holy Spirit as is the Word of God, that is reserved for Scripture alone, inspiration, we do believe because they accurately give the true sense and meaning of biblical doctrine that they are, therefore, without doctrinal error. We believe that they do in, their, in the whole doctrine that's communicated there, that they do give the truth without doctrinal error. Well, are we saying that it's impossible to improve upon the Westminster Confession of Faith? No, we're not saying that. There are no doubt things that could be added to it that they were left out as far as uh, uh, further, uh, further heresies, further false teachings, things like this. Uh, are we saying that it couldn't have been worded possibly even in a more clear or better sense than it was? No, we're not saying that either. But we are saying that it is faithful. What is taught there is faithful to the Scripture. These confessional standards are therefore not simply to be the confession of the elders of this church, but they ought to be therefore the confession of each communicant member as well. The last thing I would just say um, as we close this evening is just this. Where do we find, the question is asked, where do we find the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger and shorter catechism mentioned in the Scripture as a term of communion? In order to be a member, a communicant member of a church, where does it say that you have to adopt these particular man-made standards? These human Written, humanly written standards. Where does it say that in the Scripture? Well, as I've noted before, uh, could a confessed dispensationalist or a confessed uh, Arminian or a confessed Romanist or a confessed any other uh, uh, false teaching that you could come up with, one who affirmed dogmatically these errors to be the truth, 
Could they have been a communicant member within the apostolic church? Here are the apostles teaching one thing and they say, no, I do not agree with you apostles. Could they have come into membership in that church? And I think that most of us would recognize that they could not have denied the truth and yet been admitted to communicant membership in that apostolic church. And yet, where will you find those specifically mentioned as terms of communion? That, that you can't be uh, an Arminian or you can't be a dispensationalist uh, and, and uh, the dispensationalist basically not recognizing covenantal unity from the old covenant to the new covenant. Where does it say that, that one who holds that view cannot be admitted? Well, we find all of these teachings throughout the Word of God. They are not specifically itemized as a list of terms of communion, but they are uh, found throughout the Scripture. And so my point is simply that if a doctrine is clearly biblical and yet it is steadfastly denied by one who desires to become a communicant member, he is excluded until he can affirm that he believes it to be agreeable to the Word of God. And in the same way, we believe that each of these terms of communion, not only the second term of communion, but all six are biblical and therefore do rightly form our terms of communion. Well, that concludes our lesson for this evening. And uh, so let us uh, open the time up for any questions that uh, you might have and uh, try to uh, answer those questions. Uh, do we have any questions from our lesson this evening? Yes, Reg? Did you speak, speak up to... Oh, you have a few of them. I, I saw you waiting to see if uh, anybody else had any questions. Okay, the question is, given what has been said this evening, uh, how would we describe uh, churches that uh, obviously do not subscribe to these terms of communion? Well, we would certainly have to say that, uh, that we believe that these to be uh, agreeable to the Word of God, uh, to be the uh, teaching of Scripture. Uh, we believe that this is uh, what our Presbyterian forefathers adhered to. They called this the true Christian religion. They, they referred to this as the true Christian religion. Uh, that we would have to say the, uh, concerning these churches that they are uh, unfaithful churches. They are outside of the realm of being faithful to the truth of God. And, uh, and, and this, again, goes back to the very Constitution being defective. That Constitution to which they, uh, whatever their creed or whatever they appeal to uh, as uh, representing the truth is itself defective. And when you have a defective uh, constitution, uh, there is an unfaithfulness. There's a defection from uh, the truth that has occurred. Go ahead. This question 
do we say of people that are in those churches then if they come to this position? And also, uh, what would uh, uh, be the responsibility of, like I say, could anybody just go to these churches to listen to them or, uh, you know, just drop in to visit? Or how would that impact those things? Okay, again, just to get the question on the tape, um, what what should be the response on behalf of those who uh, are in churches that uh, have defected from the truth and uh, uh, have come to realize uh, this particular position as being biblical, what should they do? Should they remain in, in the situation in which they are, continue to, to uh, uh, listen to... Uh, to the to the preaching, uh, or should they take a different uh, posture? And uh, uh, we would uh, we would certainly encourage people not to remain in in churches where the truth is not being proclaimed. Uh, again, the truth is uh, is so important. It, it is it is uh, that which the Lord has given to us, and for which. Um, the saints through the ages have uh, uh, died uh, and uh, uh, shed their blood for. We cannot, again, um, uh, based on the passages, the, the biblical admonition is to avoid and separate from such brethren uh, who walk unruly. And if, uh, uh, if, you're not, if you know, people in our own uh, uh, congregation, should they uh, in turn... Uh, feel uh, free to 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 go and uh, visit uh, these churches and to uh, listen to the preaching and and participate in uh, the communion and the Lord's Supper and uh, this type of thing. Well, it, to do so is in effect to say that we are in ecclesiastical communion. We are in in unity, and we already defined what unity is. It's unity in the faith. It's unity in the truth. And so to, to presume to do that is to say, I am uh, in, uh, with these particular Christians, I'm in one, uh, I'm in agreement in, and have and hold the same faith, uh, the same truth. We are in agreement con- concerning these things. And uh, um, I think that uh, for us to do that uh, is to uh, basically uh, uh, either deceive ourselves or to deceive others in, in saying that. Yes? Would, would you have any biblical or other historical precedents that would impact that? Are there any other historical, uh, uh, biblical or historical precedents? Uh, uh, we would certainly cite uh, the uh, in the Old Testament um, where the church, uh, after the uh, two nations separated, um, you don't find uh, anywhere uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, like the prophet Elijah, uh, encouraging people to to attend uh, the uh, the worship services uh, that were going on uh, in the northern kingdom. Uh, you don't uh, uh, as well find uh, the prophets encouraging people to attend even in the southern kingdom when idolatry of various kinds was introduced into uh, the temple. You don't find the prophets in any way encouraging people to attend uh, those particular services. 
uh, it is uh, uh, in vain for them to do so. It is uh, to, uh, to, to participate in idolatry. And I think historically, um, we, we find around the time of the Second Reformation, the Westminster Assembly, that uh, those who adhered to uh, the, the true uh, and biblical principles of, um, of uh, Presbyterianism, that they found themselves many times in situations where you had Presbyterian brethren who, on the one hand, had sworn, both, in both cases, sworn to uphold the covenants, which were biblical covenants, the National Covenant, the Solemn League and Covenant, you find Presbyterian brethren dividing and separating because certain of the brethren had been faithful to uphold those particular covenants. Others had not been faithful. And the brethren who were called protesters um, uh, in this particular uh, circumstance protesting against the unfaithfulness of the other brethren, refused to, uh, to uh, share ecclesiastical uh, communion with, uh, with them, even though they were a part of the same church, the Church of Scotland. They refused to have ecclesiastical communion with them until there was repentance in these particular areas. So I think uh, there, there certainly is a biblical and historical precedent for withdrawing and separating uh, from uh, false teaching and uh, heresy, uh, not only for ourselves, but uh, I think uh, as well for our children. To continue to, to have our children uh, in a position or even one time to, to have them uh, attend a Sunday school or to have them sit through a service where there are things going on where they, that they know based on their, their teaching are wrong is to totally confuse the child. Why are we here? Uh, is, this, is this acceptable? Uh, uh, if it's not acceptable, why are we sitting here and listening? Uh, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't even make sense probably to our own children to be uh, in that kind of a situation. Right, go ahead. Do you have another one? or? Oh, okay. <laughs> Okay, so the question is, uh, we've already made the point that churches should have creeds, and, and in effect, uh, all churches, whether they realize it or not, do have creeds, but... Uh, should nations uh, as well, not only churches, should nations have creeds and, uh, um, you know, simple response, uh, yes, they should have creeds. Uh, we can really uh, not any more tolerate pluralism in the church than we can in the civil realm uh, to tolerate uh, pluralism in the civil realm where the magistrate does not, since he's been given the responsibility to suppress heresy according to the Westminster Confession of Faith and all the Old Testament uh, um, uh, figures that we find, examples we find uh, uh, teaching that that is the role of the civil magistrate. Since that is his duty, how can he know 
what is heresy? How can he know what is false teaching and what he should suppress uh, and what he should allow and permit, what he should promote? Uh, which church to, to, uh, uh, to promote within his kingdom? Which churches? Uh, he can't know unless he has a standard. And you don't obviously want a standard different from that which the church recognizes. So, again, it argues for the same standard to be used as far as a creed or a confession of faith in both the civil realm and in the ecclesiastical realm. And this was, again, what our, forefa- our Presbyterian forefathers simply maintained in, uh, in all of their writings, in their practice. And in fact, not uh, simply uh, the Church of Scotland, but that was simply the, the practice of all Reformed churches to have an established creed and religion within, uh, the, uh, within the civil realm. Yes, go ahead. Okay, so the question is, if if uh, sinful toleration of error brings God's judgment upon the church, will that also bring God's judgment upon the the nation as well? And uh, again, we find that to be the case uh, in the Old Testament. We find it throughout history. Those nations are blessed whose God is the Lord, uh, who affirm the truth, who support the truth. Those that defect from the truth uh, suffer the, con- <clears throat> the consequences. The judgment of God does fall upon them. And uh, we, could, uh, uh, we could go through example after example uh, illustrating that particular point. Yes. And so, again, one more question relating to the uh, civil magistrate here: um, that if uh, the, does the parallel hold true with regard to a Christian? Uh, if he is to dissent from a constitution in the church that is not biblical, uh, is he also required to dissent from a constitution that's unbiblical within a nation? And uh, again, I, I think the parallel does hold true, that uh, uh, we, we violate the first commandment, uh, thou shalt have no other gods before me, if we can swear allegiance to a, a constitution that is is not distinctively uh, Christian in nature, and uh, we can uh, we can only swear allegiance to to constitutions that are clearly biblical, that are clearly Christian in nature, um, and uh, um, the constitution of uh, the nations as we look around us certainly we would have to admit uh, are not uh, clearly not biblical not founded upon the Lordship of Jesus Christ, not uh, exalting the supremacy of God's law uh, above uh, all human law and uh, this type of thing. And so we find ourselves in that particular position, I believe. Are there any other questions? All right, we'll end our discussion then at this point. 
This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.